If you would take your bulletins in hand and turn to the Hatterberg Catechism questions printed for you there from Lord's Day 2 of the Misery of Man. And they begin on one page and continue on the uh, following page. So these three questions, and we'll read them responsibly. I'll read the question and you read the answer. From where do you know your misery? What does the law require of us? Can you keep all these things perfectly? If you would then turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, verses 10 to 20. And following the reading of Scripture, we will sing uh, the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Well, we went through the glorious question last week, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And got that wonderful answer that we belong to Christ, that not a hair of our head can, uh, will perish. And then the question that followed was, what do you need to know that having this comfort, you might live and die happily? And there were three things. You have to know your sin and misery. Uh, Secondly, you have to know the method, the the deliverance from your sin and misery. And third, you had to know how to appropriately give thanks to God for your deliverance. And so we come to the answers to the first part of what we need to know. Uh, We need to know how great our sin and miseries are. 
And this Lord's Day number two, along with the next two Lord's Days, are answering that question. How do we know about our misery uh, before it gets us to the point where how do we know how we can be delivered from that misery? And the first part of it, the first question is giving us the test of our condition or the how do we learn about our misery in that question number three, uh, when, whence knowest thou thy misery? How do you know your misery out of the law of God? <clears throat> in Reformed thinking, there are three uses of the law of God. The first use of the law of God is the conviction of sin. It's to confront us with our sinfulness so that we might know our need of a savior. And that's really what this question number three is all about, that first use of the law. Uh, But just to go along, just to let you know the other ones, the second use of the law is the civil use of the law, which is to govern society. Now, you you regularly hear, uh, you can't legislate morality. Well, yes, you can. And in fact, the magistrate must legislate uh, morality. You have to have laws and according to God's word is the best, but you have to have laws that tell you you can't steal, you can't murder someone, um, and how you have to govern your life for a society to function. Uh, So that's the second use of the law. The third use of the law is for sanctification. That is, the law helps us to understand how we can live a godly life to the glory of God. That use of the law was one that Luther struggled with a little bit, not because he didn't believe Christians should live a holy and righteous life. He did very clearly. But it was because Luther had such an aversion to anything that even got close to what seemed to be legalism uh, that he was would keep he would resist this one in particular. Uh, But it's not that he wouldn't agree with the fact that we should live godly lives for the Lord. But we have this, where where do you know your misery? And it's such an important question and answer and what goes along with it. Because you and I have to be confronted with our sin. You and I have to be brought to a clear sense of our misery or we will never seek the remedy that God has provided. As one person Uh, writing on this particular question, says, if we would walk the highways of comfort, we need to understand the valleys of sin. What is it that brings us misery? What is this? We're we're, We're told how our misery is through the law of God, but what is our misery? What is the misery that comes to us because of our sin? It's the consequences of our sins, sometimes the very natural and Uh, consequences of doing what is wrong. Sometimes it makes our life a mess. There's practical consequences of the misery that we have. There's the misery of guilt. Uh, There's the misery of a darkened heart. But the most significant part of the misery of sin in our lives, the condemnation that will come and all of these things, the The most significant thing is that it has broken our relationship with the God who made us. 
We are now his enemies. And he's our enemy. And what should have been a marvelous and wonderful relationship of love between us and the God who made us is now uh, there's hatred there. And we don't have that fellowship. And it brings into our lives misery. The misery of the depravity of our, our nature, so well described in Romans 3. The misery of our being separated from God and condemned by him. But what is it that confronts us with our sin and misery? How do we know what it is? And it's the law of God. As we had, saw there in Romans 3.20, it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. The law confronts us with our sinfulness and makes us aware of it so that we could Um, so that we understand our need. Uh, Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, Paul follows this up with another few statements about what the law law does uh, to us in confronting us with our sin. So look at Romans 7, verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. But once I was alive apart from the law, but then but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. The law confronts us with our sin. The law has to drive us down before we can be led to the path of life. It's an uncomfortable thing to go to your doctor and have your doctor say to you, you have a malignancy in there that we need to deal with. That's not the news you want to hear. That's, that's, you, you, you would like to say to your doctor, can't you say something more positive? <clears throat> can't you be nicer to me and say something happy? And he says, no, there's a malignancy in there and we've got to deal with it. That's the law of God. It's not the happy news we want to hear, but it's the news we need to hear. There's death in there, and we need to get rid of it. The law confronts us with our sin and misery. Well, what does the law require of us? That's the next question, question four. If if the law is confronting us, what is it that the law is telling us that we have to do? And and they're quoting, the answer is quoting from Jesus' statement to the Pharisees, the, the two great laws. The first law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this recitation of the law of God and the 
The Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27, tells us that that the person who does not uphold the words of the law by carrying them out is cursed. And so this demand of the law comes before us. And remember, the Bible says, be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. So the demands of the law are not just to do the best you can. The demands of the law confront you with what you are required to do. And it's not just to get by. And notice the different elements of this command as Jesus quotes it. And he's pulling from the Old Testament. He's pulling from Deuteronomy when he's quoting this. It's Even though Jesus would have had the authority to speak however he wanted, he's quoting the word of God. You have to love the Lord, your God. You have to love the Lord. You have to love God. This is commanded of you. This is not an option. You have to love God. But it's the thing that we don't do by nature. It's the thing we hate to do. God created us in his image, in his likeness. He created us to be in fellowship with him. And yet we and Adam and Eve chose to eat of the forbidden fruit And we have turned to our own way. And we don't love the Lord. It's obedience to God. It's the acknowledgement of his infinite goodness, of his holiness, his righteousness, his mercy, his love. The person who ought to have the highest esteem In our thoughts and minds, above everything else and everyone else is God, but it's not him. We don't find our greatest desire and esteem in him. And he says, you got to love the Lord your God. Now, we know he's speaking here to the uh, Jewish people who had the law of God, and they would have understand that it was Yahweh whom they had to love and be devoted to. But the reality is this command isn't just for religious people. It's not just for people who have the Bible. This is for all people. Every single person created by God is called to love him. He is their God. An agnostic or an atheist might say, well, no, he's not my God. And they might try to cover over with a false religion or an idolatry of some sort or another. But the reality is he is indeed their God. He's your God. It's inescapable. He is the God who made them. They may not want to love him, but they're commanded to love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your affections and your desires and your interests and your inclinations, the core of your being needs to be directed to and devoted to loving God. But that's not where they usually go. Our affections and desires usually go to the things of this world. But you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul, that part of your being that makes choices, your wills, that decides to do this or that, do you make your decisions based on what 
will be a demonstration of love to God? Or are you doing what you want to do? Am I doing what I want to do? You're to love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your decision making. Doesn't, doesn't mean those decisions are easy. They're sometimes very much not easy. You're to love the Lord your God with all your mind. It's, just, it's not just the minister or elders or Sunday school teachers that need to read the word and think about the word and be theologians. Maybe the small t theologians, but anyway, be students of the Bible. All of you are called to that. All of you are called to use your minds in service to God, to fill your minds with the thoughts of God, to love him by giving all that attention to him. You're to love the Lord your God with all your strength. When you're living your life and you're putting your thoughts and your desires and your will and all those things are being put into action, that's loving the Lord your God with all your strength. You don't have to be physically strong to love the Lord your God in this way. It's, it's your actions he's talking about. The youngest child, the oldest adult may be frail, may not have a lot of physical strength, but they can love God with what they do. And how they live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. What is it that makes it the first and greatest commandment? Well, on the one hand, it's because you're commanded to love the one who is the first and greatest person. The object of your love and your affection is the greatest being that exists in all the universe. How can you not love him more than everything else? He's to be the captivating person of your, all your affections and your love and your choices. It's the first and greatest commandment because all the other commandments follow from this one. All the, other, all the rest of the commandments are living out loving God. Before you can ever love your neighbor as you should, you have to love God. And it's out of loving him that then you're able to keep the other commandments. Not killing, not stealing, not committing adultery. It's the first and greatest commandment because it's the first and greatest task task that can be given to us in our lives to love God what does the law require of us well that's part of the answer that it gives us the second part of the Jesus answer is and, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself these two commandments on them hang all the law and the prophets you see a, a very good uh, pattern or hanging of the ten commandments the first four commandments are your command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The following six is to love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and your mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. All those things are ways you can love your neighbor 
as, as you should. And this commandment grows out of and is built on the first command. But it's a calling that's very demanding as well. Not only are we to love God first, but we're to love other people. Even, and maybe particularly, when they're not lovely. To surrender our own interests, our own passions, our own desires, and our own service for the service of other people. Uh, Words of compassion, letters or cards, making a meal, simple things. Not grand things, simple things. Speaking a word of kindness. Praying for them. Helping someone who's frail. It's very demanding because it demands for you and for me that we have to get out of ourselves. We have to get out of ourselves and put ourselves in the interest of that other person. And love them. And give of ourself for them. Well, the third question, question number five, <clears throat> asks a, us a question that's pretty convicting. Can you keep all these things perfectly? Now, those who are kind of flippant about this, we're going to say, well, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, I haven't done the worst of sins. I'm not perfect, but I'm, 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 I'm going to make it. I think I'm doing okay. But the answer doesn't really let us off the hook. Because the answer gives us what the Bible tells us, in no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. In Romans 8, Paul gives that clear description that there is enmity between us and God when we're not in Christ. And we know that it's very easy to prefer ourselves over our neighbor. And the conviction of the law, the understanding of our misery, helps is coming in understanding that we cannot do these things perfectly. It drives us to realize we need help. We need a deliverer. I'm in this sin and misery. How do I get out of it? Well, we're not finished totally getting through the sin and misery part, but I do want to tell you the end of the story. There is a deliverer. And the deliverer is pictured for you beautifully and perfectly in our Lord's Supper today. There is a deliverer who will take your sin and pay the penalty for it so you can be forgiven. And he will pour out his love into you so that you can in turn love God and love one another. It's this deliverer that you are called to see. And may we look to him and his grace and mercy and find that sure hope and comfort that will be with us in life and in death. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the richness of your love and how wonderfully you have 
laid things out in your word to be a help to us. Thank you for the reminder, painful though it is, of our sin and misery. But we also thank you for providing a deliverer, a redeemer. And may we find our hope in him and our trust in him by your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.